Welcome to the Wirecard Saga, a podcast with Tom Fox and Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director of Institutional Ethics and Integrity at Affiliated Monitors. Over this podcast series, we're going to take a deep dive into the Wirecard Saga to see where it may take us literally across the globe. Mikhail Ryder-Gordon and myself continue our exploration of all things Wirecard with our The Duality of It All and Binary Options edition. In this episode, we take a look at the current events, bringing you up to date on where Wirecard is, some ongoing investigations, an intelligence scandal in Austria, and how Wirecard used binary options to engage in a massive fraud. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with uh, Mikhail Ryder-Gordon for another episode in the continuing Wirecard saga. First of all, Mikhail, welcome back. Hi, Tom. Uh, Well, welcome back yourself. (laughs) Well, thank you. Lots happened over the past couple of weeks, so uh, why don't we get right into it and um, start off with maybe a summary of where we are today. Oh, gosh. (laughs) There's a lot to cover. I'm wearing my Thievery Corporation t-shirt, and I'm ready to go. So here we are, episode 11 on our series of the scandal that is Wirecard. And listeners, let's face it, you keep tuning in because every week, as the car turns, there's new or evolving drama. And the last couple of weeks, we have been so spoiled for choice. Note, the Bundestag IC, don't give us all these presents at once, it's too much. Christmas isn't for another, like, seven or six or seven weeks. Seriously. Uh, the developments are coming almost too fast, but we're going to, Tom, we're going to have to move to a daily podcast now. Um Every week when we catch up on these developments, right, we give it a theme. And the theme this this week is duality, which couldn't be more apropos given what has now come to light. We're starting with our favorite malfeasant, Jan Marsalek. Ever since the Bundestag formally convened its investigative committee, or IC, to examine all things Wirecard, just what the German government knew about when and who and where and how, we've been covering the IC's weekly developments. And the Bundestag publishes its transcripts of its sessions. And back on October 23rd, they casually slipped in between a discussion of COVID-19 tracing and judicial qualifications, a response to a question one of the IC members had asked the German government regarding Herr Marzalek. Seriously, this was like a wee little paragraph sandwiched between two entirely unrelated topics. So MP Fabio De Masi had asked, quote, what intelligence or other information might the German federal government have on the relationship between Jan Marsalek and the Austrian Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution and Counterterrorism? That was the question. So let's pause for a moment because the Austrian office that's being referred to here It's that country's domestic intelligence agency. In some respects, it's a little like a US FBI or UK MI5. The BVT, as it's known, was formed out of the Austrian State Police, which then incorporated other special bodies responsible for investigating terrorism and organized crime. And it's situated within the Austrian Ministry of the Interior. Okay, now the BVT used to be a welcome member of what is known as the Club de Bern, which is the organization of the directors of all domestic secret services of the EU member states, and then throw in Norway and Switzerland. But back in 2019, some rather unfortunate pieces of information regarding the BVT came to light, specifically its ties between the ruling Austrian far-right Freedom Party in Russia, and listeners remember episode seven, And these ties to Russia and the far-right FPO caused British and Dutch spy agencies to heavily restrict the amount of intelligence they were willing to share with Austria. Word of these regrettable connections came out right around the same time as the result of an audit conducted by the British and the Germans of the BVT's IT system were published. And that audit identified the BVT's internal network in Austria, which was linked to classified intelligence network, used to exchange sensitive information with other intelligence agencies within the club. Uh, Regrettably, Austria's did not possess the requisite clearances for secret or top secret information. 
And the audit also found folks in the BVT were allowed to bring their own mobile devices into the building, meaning they could take photos of classified information or use them as listening devices. And, and listeners, that, that's a big no-no in intelligence security. But that's not all. The BVT network was connected to the internet. That's right, BVT employees could access it from outside without two-factor authentication at minimum. Now, you're asking Mikhail, why is all this relevant? Because when de Masi asked the federal government of Germany what intelligence or other information might they be in possession of that demonstrated a relationship between Jan Marsalek and the BVT, the government answered, and here's what they said. Now, you ask, the federal prosecutor general of Germany has evidence that Austrian national Jan Marsalek, former COO of Wirecard, was an asset, that's an informant, to an agent of the BVT. Uh, not only that, but we, the German government, have evidence that it was the BVT employee who handed over four top secret reports from the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. And again, remember episode seven, the relationship and the links to Russia and the use of Novichok? Yeah, seemingly this BVT agent handed Herr Marsalek four highly classified reports from the OPCW because, hey, when you're running an informant, the first thing you do is give them classified information? Hmm. Bottom line, Austria had an agent at the top of a major German publicly traded company. That's the response from the German government. They then went on to tell the IC, yeah, based on this evidence, um, you know, we had our lawyers at the German Federal Supreme Court, oh, that's the Bundesanwalt, analyze whether we Germans could prosecute Marsalek for essentially acting as a foreign spy adverse to Germany. But we reached the conclusion that thus far, we don't, we don't have sufficient evidence that Marsalek's activities with the BBT rise to the level necessary to prosecute him here for espionage. Not to mention they don't actually have Herr Marsalek's corpus present. Now, listeners, you heard this correctly. The German government quietly confirmed Marsalek was working for Austrian intelligence. As MP de Masi demanded in the hearing, and this is a direct quote from him, the chancellor should reach for the phone as soon as possible and ask, Austrian chancellor, Sebastian Kurtz, what the Austrians are doing here, meaning Germany. Yeah, Austria, like, what the hell? The Austrian minister of the interior isn't commenting, not a big surprise there, but that isn't all. See, back in 2018, when all that ugliness about the BBT was coming out, Austria had refused to cooperate with the other Bern Club members in expelling Russian diplomats in response to Russia's use of Novichok on former Russian spy Sergei Skripal. Again, see episode seven. Shortly thereafter, an Austrian army colonel was arrested by the Austrians on suspicions of having spied for Russia for decades. Another Bundestag hearing transcript tells us even more. A few weeks back, the IC submitted a list of written questions as to the German government, again, all about what they knew, when, how, where, rewire card. Included in that list of questions were queries such as, hey, apparently you German authorities, you already had evidence that Marsalek had close ties with Russian authorities, read intelligence agency, as far back as 2017. Would you care to comment, maybe elaborate, or explain to us IC folks why you didn't act against Marsalek back then? Oh, and seemingly you folks in the German government also had information on Marsalek and other foreign intelligence agencies? Like other activities as well? Maybe Marsalek showing up at the Munich Security Conference, but not on behalf of Germany? And could you elaborate on Herr Marsalek and Russian Eugenie Brigosian uh, and this Syria business, you know, that whole private Russian military company, the Wagner Group? Oh, and whilst you're at it, 
maybe speak to how it's possible that Wirecard was the issuer of credit cards for German government agencies. Read German intelligence agencies. Mm -hmm. This time, the response to the IC's questions was a lengthy discourse on state security law and the need to conceal what German intelligence gets up to for the sake of German security. So they're refusing to answer the IC's questions. I will revisit uh, Prigozhin later. But think about an Austrian or Russian agent, double, with access to information called from credit cards, wire card issued to German intelligence officers. Coupled out with Marcellic status, he held diplomatic passports, traveled frequently, knew a wide range of political leaders and corporate decision makers. And you have the making of a significant intelligence disaster for the BND. Add in information the BVK may have held on, on Russian organized crime, since that's under their remit, and terrorist financing in Syria and chemical weapons like Novichok. And, well, you can see where this is leading. One of the MPs on the IC told German newspaper Handelsblatt that, yeah, the IC believes Marsalek may have been working for several intelligence agencies simultaneously. And folks, that's not an uncommon occurrence for an, an agent or informant. That is informant who end up wind, wind up and working for multiple countries' intelligence agencies. It's now the concern of having seeming lost control of said informant. So now, as that story was quietly emerging from the IC, two other events relating to Marsalek happened, also in the past couple of weeks. Word came out that there had been an, quote, unexplained break-in, this is Munich police terms, not mine, of Marsalek's residence in Munich. You know, the one across the street from the Russian embassy. Presumably it was inexplicable because they couldn't identify what specifically was stolen or what someone was looking for or who had been there. And then on October 27th, just a few days back, an arrest of a friend and business partner of Marsalek's, not from Wirecard, but very closely linked to Wirecard. Now, German media reported only that a, quote, confidant of Marsalek had been arrested and that this unnamed individual, deemed a flight risk, has been accused of embezzling millions from or via a company called IMS Capital. IMS was apparently the recipient of huge sums of money from Masalek, but then suddenly filed bankruptcy last week. Well, now a couple of weeks ago. But folks, it is so much juicier than that. So I did a little squirreling around into IMS. IMS Capital Partners, ostensibly based in Munich, <clears throat> has but one managing partner, Alexander Vushok. Now, Vushok doesn't just run IMS. Uh, described in its listings on PitchBook as a, quote, angel group of high net worth investors preferring, their term, preferring to invest in e-commerce, tech, digital media, fintech, travel, mobile, and retail sectors. A little bit of breadth there. No, no, there is so much more to Vutrak. Vutrak is also managing director of, among other companies, Atravis, GmbH, Comville, GmbH, 2e.com, Turbina Energy, hyped by, in a joint venture with a partner from Liechtenstein, BioNovate in Switzerland, and, wait for this, listeners, Gumo. Remember Gumo? See Wirecard Masala, episode nine. Gumo was one of the three Indian companies Marsalik led Wirecard to acquire in that dodgy deal via the Mauritius Shell Companies. Gumo Holding Singapore, previously known as USMA Holdings Private Limited, was controlled by Gumo UK Limited. And that was owned by, remember, Henry O'Sullivan? You've just got to go back and re-listen to episode nine if you've missed this. So our boy, Buchak, he's MD of Gumo Europe and director of Gumo India Holdings. <laughs> Yuppers! Now let's dig a little further into the story of his arrest. German federal prosecutors accuse Vuchak of sucking out two and a half million euros, give or take, from IMS just prior to IMS filing for insolvency last week, out of the blue. 
The 2.5 million, that's thought to have been Marsalek's money. <laughs> but there's more than that. You see, it is suspected that Marsalek actually diverted some 50 million euros out of Wirecard, funneling it through IMS with the help of Ushak. How? IMS was one of two primary shareholders in yet another tech company, this one called GetNow. Now, GetNow is an online supermarket, and it does appear it was a legitimate web platform, real groceries, real customers, real deliveries across Germany. But it was a small company. I say was because GetNow also filed BK just as IMS did. Marsalek was GetNow's primary angel investor via IMS. When Marsalek skipped town, the money stopped flowing into GetNow. I guess Muscovites don't need online grocery platforms. I don't know. Initial assessment of GetNow's books suggest it received tens of millions of euros, allegedly for expansion purposes. But in addition to money from Marsalek, Wirecard also invested in GetNow. <laughs> There's a surprise supposedly having put in some 1.8 million euros via Wirecard Asia Holdings. Sure, GetNow worked with Wirecard as Wirecard was GetNow's payment processor of choice. Of course it was. A few minutes ago, I said IMS was one of two shareholders in GetNow. The other shareholder, GetNow Holding Limited, registered in the Isle of Man. GetNow Holding has or had a 45% stake in GetNow. Marsalek apparently managed to weasel out of former Wirecard CEO Marcus Braun a 50 million, dollar, uh, 50 million euro loan. <clears throat> now, we understand that he at least repaid the loan using money from GetNow Holding. The person behind the Isle of Man GetNow Holding Company it appears we may have cited Henry O'Sullivan again. So now, Mr. Vushak is cooling his heels in German prison whilst federal prosecutors try to sort out where all that Marsalek money went. And it turns out there's more money flowing from Marsalek and IMS Capital. Now the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office is scrutinizing Turkey as a possible destination, not only for Marsalek and some of his dealings, but his business ties. Now, remember the merchant cash advance scheme Marsalek set up in Turkey, the one that was illegal? And you've got to go back to, I think, episode five for that. Well, Marsalek was also getting up to other businesses when he happened to be in country. According to investigative reporters with German media outlet, Wirtschaft uh, Voka, the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office is following a trail of Marsalek breadcrumbs that lead to Turkey. Oh, and for our listeners who don't know, Germany, Germany and Turkey have had close relations for years. There's a significant population uh, migration between the two. Okay, so how did prosecutors come to turn their attention to Turkey? The starting point, IMS capital. IMS had received nearly 20 million euro for investments by two linked Turkish companies. And those two companies, well, they just happened to be managed by Rami El-Obaidi. Now, listeners, if you need to go back to episode seven for the full backstory involving Libya and Marsalek, do so. But recall, El-Obaidi was the former head of the Libyan Secret Service. <clears throat> He's the one that was working with Marsalek on those Russian-related, quote, business ventures in Syria featuring Russian mercenaries, I mean, Russian corporate security. el is also the one that hired all those PIs to harass the journalists and short sellers in Britain. What's more, the Turkish businesses don't just tie Marsalek and el together. They link these two to the wife of a billionaire trustee and the son of a Russian consul. Apparently, as Wirecard was imploding, the two Turkish companies, managed by el saw the writing on the wall and asked IMS for their investment money back. Uh, when it wasn't forthcoming, they filed a civil lawsuit against IMS, and this happened late in this past summer and a criminal complaint against Vucha, seeking to recoup 
their investment. According to the complaints, IMS had already reinvested the money from the Turkish companies into, amongst other things, other companies, a startup called Blink, B-L-I-N-Q, a company whose stated business was going to be the manufacture of electronic products as a supplier to the automotive industry and, quote, as well as related businesses. Mm -hmm. And Blink just happens to be run by the son of the Russian Consul General of Munich. Yep. Dmitry Ganza, son of Consul General Sergei Ganza, filed a trademark application for Blink.com only as recently as June 10th, 2020. In his application, he gave his address as being in Vienna, Austria. We'll get back to the billionaire's wife in our next episode. But you can see, folks, things are getting really interesting. Stay tuned for more from the showers of the Bosphorus. Russia and Turkey now jostling to be the regional leader in the Near East and the Transcaucasus. Does this fit in? <laughs> oh, definitely. And since we're discussing Marsalik, let's talk about one of his former colleagues. On, mon uh, what, on Monday, two weeks back, former Wirecard CFO Burkhard Lay was released on bail. Now, recall, he'd been rounded up when the Munich prosecutor's office had also arrested Braun, Stefan von Arfa, and Oliver Bellenhaus. And remember, Bellenhaus is now star witness for the prosecution. So why would the Munich public prosecutor's office let Lay out of prison after only three months? Lay was CFO from 2006 through 2017, and there was a lot going on back in 2006. We'll refer back to the last couple of episodes. He left Wirecard's management board when he stepped down from the CFO role, but he didn't leave Wirecard entirely. Rather, Lay turned lobbyist for Wirecard. Recall, he was one of the visiting one of the visitors to the Chancellor of Bavaria on Wirecard's behalf, and Lay is also the one understood to have played a key role in Wirecard's takeover of that Chinese payment process servicer. Uh, the provider that ended up in hot water with Chinese regulators. So here, we really need to pause and discuss what the IC has turned up thus far with respect to Wirecard's lobbying efforts in China with the assistance of the German government. Because there's Burkhard Lay in the midst of all this. So some weeks ago, the IC committee asked the German government about its diplomatic to-dos in China, rewirecard. They observed that thus far, only information obtained under a German Freedom of Information Act had been produced. And that information showed that lobbying firms, Spitzberg partners, and remember that's Karl Theodore uh, Gutenberg, the former federal minister of defense, used his contacts with the German ambassador in China to arrange for Wirecard to teleconference and subsequently meet with top Chinese diplomats. And the aim of all this was to obtain support from the Chinese government for Wirecard's market entry into that country. When more joy was not forthcoming, the German embassy apparently finally turned to the authorities in Beijing, as Spitzenberg partners wanted. So in response to the IC's question, the German government said, well, this all happened well before the former defense minister really was making that strong case for Wirecard back in the autumn of 2019 with, oh yeah, German chancellor, Angela Merkel. So uh, mm, don't worry about it. And the IC said, well, no, actually we'd like a little more information. So who exactly from German embassies or consulates may have been working with official authorities in the host countries like China, after being contacted by private representatives of companies like Wirecard, seeking to advance their interests in that country? Could you, could you give us a list of names, dates of meetings, who met whom, where, when, what they talked about? In fact, when you're assembling that list, could you take us as far back as 2013? At this, the German government prevaricated, cleared their throat, <clears throat> and proceeded to spew forth the diplomatic flannel and I quote, 
German heads of foreign representations, as well as their employees, maintain contacts with a large number of actors of all social groups as part of their duties. Mm -mm -mm. Uh, many conversations also take place on the sidelines of events, such as uh, receptions or trade fair visits. <clears throat> then they said it wouldn't be cost effective to maintain logs of all these meetings, conversations, phone calls, etc. So no... Oh, sorry, I see. There appears to be no real record of exactly what happened with the Chinese with respect to Wirecard gaining access to that country's market. They then went on to say, German companies have to assert themselves in increasingly competitive markets, and therefore they need support from politicians and administrations, for example, through political support, as well as advice and support from our foreign representation. But after this waffle, the IC curiously asked about the giving of gifts or monetary benefits embassy staff may have enjoyed from any of these German companies or their law firms seeking said political support. Hmm. This would appear to suggest that there is concern that Wirecard's access to China may have come with a price. Now, the German government swiftly cited the German Federal Civil Service Act, literally reading the entire law in their response. But noting that for gifts or benefits received exceeding a value of 25 euros, consent had to be obtained before receipt. So the Foreign Office can, foreign office can approve the receipt of corporate largesse subject to conditioners. Listeners, have your antenna gone up? Remember Burkhard Ley and the Spitzenberg partners with the PAP at the helm, representing Wirecard's efforts here, interfacing with German and Chinese government officials? <laughs> I'll leave you to ask the question in your own mind, but we do know Wirecard not only gained access to the Chinese market, they also managed to acquire a Chinese fintech in a relatively short time. Lei must have very good counsel because now his lawyers have convinced the Munich prosecutor's office to essentially bail him. The prosecutor's office, they've given us some insights into their thinking here. They went on record saying Lay, uh, about Lay, quote, was only involved in possible acts until the end of 2017. This suggests they're building much more of their case predicated not on the money laundering that went on for decades, nor the frauds and the self-dealing that occurred via Braun, Marsalek, Trotman, Nokelman, Von Erfa, Bellenhaus, but purely on the fraud that occurred between the period of late 2017 through June 2020. And the focus will be on balance sheet fraud and market manipulation. As Lay was not CFO at the time, the billions vanished in Asia. He may just squeak by. I guess he's counting on the prosecutor's office, not digging further into Wirecard's past. Hmm. And speaking of the past, at the behest of the European Commission, ESMA launched a fast-track peer review of Germany's supervisory response, e.g. Boffin, to the Wirecard implosion back in June. Well, the results came in of that fast-track peer review. Oh, they are not pretty. Short summary of ESMA's 189-page report, quote, a number of shortcomings, inefficiencies, and legal and procedural obstacles. Ouch. And that's ESMA being diplomatic. Let's see. With respect to Boffin, ESMA finding heightened risk of political influence by the German Ministry of Finance lack of independence at Boffin, including expressed doubts as to Boffin's internal controls regarding employee conflicts of interest. ESMA's assessment of FRAP, utterly deficient in its scope of examination of Wirecard's financial reports, misalignment between Boffin and FRAP when it comes to their roles in combating financial fraud, or for that matter, even exchanging information between the agencies. The German Audit Office for Accounting those tasked with audit oversight, failed to, quote, adequ adequately address areas that are essential to Wirecard's business and failing to examine whistleblowers and media allegations that occurred during the examinations. One of ESMA's recommendations, and there are, I'll tell you, literally hundreds in this report, 
Boffin and Frapp should try reading international newspapers with widespread acceptance in the sphere of international finance, or hint, hint, when journalists from the Financial Times report on suspected fraud at a DAX-listed company, get off your arses and take a look. ESMA's report includes a timeline of key events starting in December 2014 and moving through all of the missed opportunities for investigation and enforcement. The report sheds light on the nature of a whistleblower complaint that came into FREP in September 2016, alleging fraudulent receivables and payables in wirecard acquiring businesses at the subsidiary level, and said whistleblower apparently provided FREP with documentation to support their allegation. This whistleblower was different from the one that arose from within Wirecard, but who shared critical evidence with the FT and drew attention to discrepancies between Wirecard's cash flow and what was being booked for the company's card systems. Tip of the iceberg, folks. In another episode, we're going to dive into this report in full because the timing, the responses, the myriad of allegations is just breathtaking. Responses thus far? A German member of the European Parliament has called Esma's report a, quote, crushing verdict. An MP de Masi, yeah, he's always got something to say, called it a slap in the face for Boffin. But, but our, our, our beloved Felix Hoffeld, what, what was Boffin's response? Come on, listeners, <laughs> you know Hoffeld would remain unrepentant. His take on Esma's scathing report we disagree. As long as we have no specific indications that go beyond only public publications like press articles, we cannot issue a report to the public prosecutor's office. Uh, no, Domkoff, you're meant to investigate it. And if there's merit to the press claims, then report it. Insight into Boffin's thinking came from an unexpected source the other day. The FT's own Dan McCrum and uh, Stefania Palma were interviewed about their wirecard reporting by the Committee to Protect Journalism. McCrum was asked if Boffin had had the decency to reach out and apologize for opening an investigation into them because of their stories on wirecard. McCrum said, no, they hadn't. However, he had learned that one of Boffin's primary suspicions as to the FT's motives for publishing the stories it did was that they couldn't understand, this is Boffin's mystification, couldn't understand why the FT hadn't published the entire story all at once. Boffin struggled to comprehend how journalism and newspapers function, assuming that the serial publication of portions of the greater story was somehow a ruse to help short sellers make money. Boffin also apparently couldn't make the leap to recognizing Wirecard may have had ulterior motives when it sought to discredit the FT, as if the reporters were corrupt, but nobody within Wirecard could possibly be. Don't worry, Boffin still may be uh, brought to see the light. A German law firm is now planning to sue Boffin for breaching its duty under public law. And thus far, the firm is representing no fewer than 450 peeved Wirecard investors, institutional investors. Uh, the same firm has obtained seizure orders from a Munich court against Marcus Braun's assets. So, uh, you know, just be sure you leave Brawny Boy sufficient funds to pay his defense counsel. Meanwhile, insolvency administrator Michael Yaffa's on a global hunt to recover as much of Wirecard's missing money as he can searching companies and, account and accounts all over the world. The sale of Wirecard's core business is anticipated by the end of this month. So now we turn back to today's theme, duality or binary options. We're gonna examine one of the primary types of businesses that comprised a substantive portion of Wirecard's core client base. It also just happens that binary option scams were operated by or owned by companies owned by Wirecard execs. So what exactly is a binary option? In their simplest form, a binary option is financial product with a yes or no proposition. This is where the binary comes in. The payoff is a set of monetary amount, cash or the value of an underlying security, or nothing, bupkis, as they say. 
binary options ask a trader to wager if a certain event will happen. Will an asset rise above a certain price at a certain time, or won't it? The trader thinks yes, the asset's going to be at a specific high price at a certain time, they buy it. If they think the asset will fall below the price, they sell the option. The trader gets their payout, or loses their money they wagered, predicated on the expiry date and or expiry time. The wager, just like gambling, has a strike price and maybe gets new shoes if the price of the underlying asset lands on the right side of that strike price. And binary option products are rife with scams. Some might suggest that nearly all of them are scams. The FBI estimates that scammers steal some US 10 billion annually worldwide, and regulators around the world have banned outright binary options or issued stern fraud warnings around binary option scams. Until Israel's Knesset banned binary options in the fall of 2017, the binary options industry flourished in that country for a decade, employing thousands and fleecing victims from around the globe out of billions of dollars. And it took the newspaper, The Times of Israel, running an investigative reporting series in 2016 to unmask the binary option boiler rooms that had made Israel one of the two largest binary option industry centers in the world. The other global center, Bulgaria. Hold on to that thought. And the binary options industry in both countries does remain intertwined. In both places and elsewhere in the world, the payment processor and bank of choice for binary options fraud, it was Wirecard. So much so that some of Wirecard's own senior executives oversaw complex schemes, including forming shell companies that enabled both the online frauds and the money generated from them to flow through Wirecard masked of their true origins. Behind much of the binary options frauds, organized crime. The fraud works like this. Online fraudulent firms, sometimes with a boiler room running in tandem, dupe victims around the world into believing that they are successfully investing and earning money in binary options. They're encouraged to invest in BO financial products, deposit money with a firm, and then they'll make their BO so-called trades on the investor's behalf, right? The firm is doing this on the investor's behalf. The lure is, if the investor predicts correctly that the currency or commodity they've wagered on going up or down, the return can be up to 80%. Can't get that on the open market. You could always sell people on the concept of free money, right? The investors' apparent profits and strong sales tactics by those manning the phones and these online chats would encourage the victims to deposit more and more into their accounts. Of course, if they call it wrong, they lose, and they lose big. The more trades a customer makes, the greater the likelihood they will lose their entire deposit. And then the BO company cuts off contact with the investor and vanishes into the ether with most or all of the money, only to re reappear a day later under another BO name. It really is a form of unlicensed gambling, and it is a brilliant way to launder money. Back in 2013, the SEC opened an investigation into an entity known as Bank to Binary Limited, a Cyprus-based entity that sold binary options. It would take until 2016 for Bank to Binary and three of its affiliates, ET Binary Options, BO Systems Limited, and BDB Services, all based in the Seychelles, naturally, to settle with the SEC, disgorging nearly $7 million and paying nearly $4 million in additional penalties. But that didn't really stop Bank to Binary or its relationship with Wirecard hold that thought. The concept of binary options as a form of wagering is really not new. But in the past decade or so, companies selling these options have moved online and they're offered around the world, China, Japan, US, across Europe. And that's one of the reasons you need to incorporate, for instance, if you're going to sell to the European market in Cyprus, so you can legally sell to others outside the jurisdiction where your company is domiciled. The volume of trading in BO has soared over the last decade. Now, it's also sometimes erroneously referred to as Forex, which is not entirely accurate. But when the betting is on foreign currency going up or down and the trade is in that currency, it is a binary option scheme. Now, in 2016, before Israel cracked down, 
just two Israeli trading platforms, Spot Option and Tech Financials, which supplied technology to the BA online brokers, BO online brokers, said they held a combined $8 billion in volume annually, and they were just supplying the technology. France's securities regulator, the AMF, banned a larger BO online company in 2016. The name of that company? 24option.com. Its parent company? Another secret entity called Rodeler Limited, which also operated in Israel under the name Beta Media. It kept going. Why? Regulators banned the companies based in their own territory from selling binary options to residents in that country, but they don't ban them from selling to clients overseas. When the AMF investigated the secret entity Rodeler, it found that nearly 100% of its customers lost all of their money. And banker of choice for 24 option, Rodeler and their dozens of subsidiaries and related entities, Wirecard. Now hold Rodeler in the back of your minds because we'll return to them in just a moment. In the massive BO scheme run out of Israel, there are some central players. Gal Barak, a dual Israeli national. Three brothers, the Kartus, dual Israeli Canadians. German Uwe Lenhoff and a bevy, a bevy of Cypriot and Israeli scammers tied to Romania, Albania, and Bulgaria. Those working in BO call centers tied to these online BO companies are told to create fake names, fake biographies. When customers say they want to withdraw all of their funds or close their accounts, all manner of delaying tactics are implemented, with the companies frequently then claiming the person seeking to close their account is attempting fraud. So the company then freezes the account, with the money of course still in it, and shuts off communication. Other deceptive tactics are used, such as complex calculations designed to minimize the house loss and reduce any money the client may earn. If a particular asset behaves on the market as the market might expect, the BO company will pull the asset from their platform suddenly. Some platforms even go so far as to post fake results ensuring customers will lose. If a customer presented external evidence of a commodity or asset going as they predicted and demanding a payout, the BO company will frequently show them their investment contract, which has a tiny little print that the company uses proprietary algorithms, which may not reflect real-time movements, and thus, no payout. Now, this is a common tactic on the online BO sites, and these leverage time zone differences from where the customer is based to the point of sale and the rates where the company claims to be at the time. The house always wins, kids. In this case, victims don't even get a cheap free buffet and a comp late checkout time. When the Times of Israel interviewed individuals who had worked at some of these BO companies, the former employees were hard pressed to identify any customer who had ever managed to successfully withdraw their money. Now, Canadian Israeli brothers, David Jonathan and Joshua Kartu, and two partners were sued by the US Commodities Futures Trading Commission just the other day. They are alleged to have engaged in a 165 million fraudulent binary option trading scheme run out of Israel. This suit comes on the heels of the Canadian Ontario Securities Commission having sued the Cartoos back in May of this year. How does this relate to Wirecard? Well, you see, the Cartoos have a long history, both with binary option schemes, money laundering the proceeds of their fraud through Wirecard entities. David Cartu is the beneficial owner of an entity known as Gray Mountain Management. And Gray Mountain Management Limited serves as a binary options hub for more than 40 Israel-based BO and Forex websites. Gray Mountain, managed for Cartu by a family member, not his, in Ireland, held a payment services processing agreement with Wirecard UK and Ireland. You know, that dodgy subsidiary Wirecard AG wasn't known about for many years. Wirecard UK processed payments for Grey Mountain, and Grey Mountain ran a number of other entities such as Memic Services and Sith Trader, which miscoded transactions for binary option schemes, and Wirecard UK paid the relabel profits back to the binary option companies. Oh, <laughs> and Grey Mountain? It shared an address with Wirecard UK in Ireland. 
So listeners, by now you remember who helped organize Wirecard UK and Ireland, right? We're at episode 11. You remember this? Prior owners, Dietmar Nokelman and partner John Carbone, owner of Gateway Solutions, and then COO Rutger Troutman, whose other entities, including Irish Incorporated Forex Trading Platform Limited and Rotorol Limited, all share the same address with Grey Mountain. Sharing is caring. Andy Quinn was a fellow officer of both Troutman's companies, FX Currency and Forex Trading. Hmm, anyone detecting a theme here? And for a number of years, also happened to be an officer of Wirecard UK and Ireland, as well as Wirecard Payment Solutions Holdings Limited. Wirecard acquired the principal assets of what is now Wirecard Payment Solutions from Nokelman and Carbone back in 2007. Now, I've mentioned this before, but Troutman and Nokelman, whilst officially leaving Wirecard respectively in 2010 and 2009, didn't really leave. How could they? The binary option companies needed them. Troutman continued to sign corporate filings for Wirecard UK Ireland through 2011 and then became an officer of yet two more companies sharing an address with Wirecard UK Ireland and Grey Mountain up until only five years ago. Nokelman, he continued to sign corporate filings on companies sharing the address of Grey Mountain and Wirecard UK Ireland and even used the address when he filed an application with the Interactive Gaming Council in Canada, binary options having been rebranded as gaming, which is probably more accurate, games of chance and all that. Now, David Cartu has fled to Georgia, and no, not the U.S. state, the country. Joshua Cartu, he's fled to Hungary. Oh, poor Jonathan Cartu, still sitting in Israel, is looking awfully vulnerable. We'll come back to Eastern Europe in just a moment. So let's turn our attention now back to Rotor. Why? Because Rotor sits at the very heart of a massive scheme of illegal payment processors on behalf of binary options and cybercrime schemes. Rotor is linked through a company known as B2G GmbH, run by a German, Rainer Truer, and his Russian partners, Oleg Schwartzman. Now, B2G ran illicit profits generated by companies such as Blue Trading, Option 888, X-Trader FX, Safe Markets, and dozens of other BO brands on behalf of Gal Barak and Uwe Lenhoff. Wirecard Bank provided the bank accounts to Option 888, 24Option, Handle FX, and Rotaler, and many others. And that is because the Greater Rotaler Group controlled 24Option, and linked to another criminal enterprise out of Cyprus known as F1 Markets. Now, all of this fraudulent money has to be cleaned and the credit cards charging, charged involving these illicit activities need to be obfuscated and made to look like acceptable purchases. So related to option 888, remember, tied back to B2G, and EU authorities this year linked B2G to hundreds of cybercrime and online scam some 790 million euros worth. Option 888 linked to B2G was connected to another holding company, Altair Entertainment Incorporated in Curacao. Beneficial owner of Altair Entertainment, Uwe Lenhoff. Now Lenhoff died this past summer, killed in his cell in Vienna awaiting trial. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Rotorler has been operating companies in Albania, Romania, Cyprus, Belize, Germany, the Netherlands, as well as a network of companies for a subgroup of boiler rooms run out of Bulgaria and tied to organized crime there, known as Paragon, including FX Trader Market. Now, these entities are all incorporated in Belgrade, uh, Belgrade, San Vincent, the Grenadines, Marshall Islands, Estonia, and hey, even a few in the UK. Sitting over this complex arrangement are Gal Barak, partner of now deceased Uwe Lenhoff, alongside Russians Vladislav Smirnov, Atanas Georgiev Vangelov, that Georgiev name again, go figure, and Vera Nashkova Andanova. Smirnov is Barak's other business partner. Banker to Altair Entertainment? Come on, kids, you know this one. Wirecard. 
In fact, when the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office tried to freeze money in Altair, Altair accounts at Wirecard Bank related to investigating the large-scale fraud from these binary option schemes, unsurprisingly, Wirecard told the prosecutor's office that the account was closed back in 2016 and, oh, sorry, the funds of the defrauded retail investors, they're no longer available. And folks, that request from the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office Hmm. The story of Wirecard involvement with these fraudsters and the laundering of their hundreds of millions of stolen money, that broke back in the late spring of 2019. In fact, the FTC brought an action against a group called Allied Wallet for facilitating money laundering on behalf of entities running online scams, but covering them up by layers of shell companies and recoding the transactions. Named in the FTC settlement, Wirecard for payment processing for Allied Wallet. That was June 2019. When the stories related to Option 888, Galbarak, and the tentacles of the binary option companies around the world broke, few people realized how intertwined they were or how central Wirecard was. Barack organized another payment processor, PayVision, and he organized that one directly. Wirecard received commissions through the end of 2017 for the processing of payments for Bank to Binary, as well as Rotaler, 24 options, and via court documents involving the prosecution of those involved in PayVision, Rotaler, and other bin, uh, binary options, Wirecard features through all of them. Which brings us back to Barack and Lenhoff. Barack's Bulgarian wife, Marina Barack and Lenhoff, operated boiler rooms across Bulgaria, Serbia, Montenegro, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. They used the profits from the illegal binary option sites to expand into other forms of cybercrime. And they branched out into online casino projects, including one in the Philippines. They purchased real estate and laundering for Eastern European and Balkan organized crime. The money from all this industrious effort run through Wirecard. Lenhoff and Barack were arrested with dozens of others across Europe in 2019. Lenhoff was tied to other companies designed to obscure the origins of cybercrime via bank transfers through various illegal payment processors. Lenhoff was connected to another German, Paul Prusner, and a Dutch citizen, Dirk uh, Jan Bakker, DJ to his friends, who held Veltiaco Group and Binslet Enterprises. Those companies, in turn, held celestial trading out of the Seychelles and Celtic Pay Limited in the UK. And those entities, they laundered money and obscured payments via a Singapore-based entity called Crypto Daily Private Limited. Wire transfers from binary option scams would run through one of these illicit payment processors, would identify the client payment as being something innocuous, and then forward the money onto the scammer's bank accounts, usually providing a corresponding invoice for Consulting, the illicit payment processors, they take about a 20% cut. Crypto Daily conveniently offered cryptocurrency exchange services through its Estonian entity. Lenhoff used the bank accounts of Crypto Daily to process these bank wires from Dupio customers. Unfortunately, the reason Lenhoff may have expired so soon prior to trial was he had cooperated with European authorities and incriminated his partners. All of the bribes, threats, and even alleged assassinations, not to mention political connections, Barack was known to be close with the Bulgarian Minister of the Interior. All of that, how did Barack and Lenhoff's complex transnational criminal enterprise get brought down? One very brave individual, a Serbian-German man called Alexander Ignatovich, he contacted a cybercrime unit of the German police back in 2018. He told the detectives he had information on a multi-million euro fraud operation being run out of call centers in the capitals of Belgrade and Sofia, and that he was willing to tell all in exchange for protection for himself and his family. His affidavit was nearly 50 pages in length. His testimony proved critical exposing the full extent of the binary option scams operating across Europe. In February this year, Ignatovich was found dead in a hotel room in Sofia just months before he was due to take the stand as a key prosecution witness in the trial of Barack.
But just this past September, a court in Vienna found Galbarat guilty of fraud and money laundering. Unfortunately, his sentence was only four years prison time. So let's pick back up on that illicit payment processing. Former Wirecard COO Nokelman, who I've mentioned in past episodes, married a German-Israeli citizen and began dividing his time between Wirecard and euphemistically businesses in Israel. One of those businesses in particular, ICC Cal, ties right back into Wirecard binary option scams and obscuring the origins of these illicit schemes by illegal payment processing. In December 2011, the National Fraud Investigation Unit of Israel's FBI equivalent, Lahav 433, with assistance from its Economic Crime Unit, began investigating Israeli credit card company, ICC Cal, which they suspected of fraud, money laundering, bribery, falsifying its books. Ultimately, ICC Cal and its top executives were found to have defrauded international credit organizations such as MasterCard and Visa to the tune of billions of shekels because ICC Cal was a merchant acquirer, meaning it had a license from Visa and MasterCard to acquire credit card payments, providing it first vetted the merchants to make sure they were not engaged in illegal activity, and then labeled the transactions for each merchant with a four-digit code that accurately reflected the nature of the merchant's business. Unfortunately, <laughs> ICC between 2007 and 2010 camouflaged and cleared transactions for online gambling sites, binary option, real, uh, pornography, illicit pharma sites, in order to conceal the extent of the illicit activity. ICC Cal had this license from Visa, Visa and MasterCard to acquire credit card payments provided, right, that it did this. Well, when it accepted and acquired these, it did so under deceptive practices, and it provided false codes so that Visa and MasterCard would think the transactions were low risk and approve them. They laundered money for hardcore porn, portraying them as legitimate areas of commerce. But in the end, not only did the COO and ex-chairman plead guilty, but Dietmar Nokelman, still serving as Wirecard COO when this activity was going on in parallel, pled guilty as an accessory paying a fine of over 400000 serving a six-month probation, forfeiting $2 million. Oh, and part of the deal, part of that plea, not naming Wirecard. According to the judgments in two plea bargains in the ICC Cal affair, ICC Cal's Israeli employees were not at first knowledgeable or well-versed in the methods of high-risk payment processing, but were approached in 2006 or thereafter by at least three men, two Germans and a Canadian, who asked ICC Cal to process payments on their behalf. One of them, our own Mr. Nokelman, who represented a company that aggregated gambling sites. And Nokelman had used his various companies, some of those in Ireland and tied to Wirecard UK Ireland, to launder gambling and binary option payments through digital wallets, sending the money through the web of companies out through Wirecard. And the other, the other guy was David Kartu. And he and another Israeli were heavily implicated in running this. They were also investors in Wirecard. <laughs> so maybe there's a little bit of karma there. So there you have it. Wirecard, binary options. That's us for now. We'll be back next week with all the latest updates on Wirecard. And we're going to scrutinize the other primary Wirecard client sectors online gambling and porn industries and their ties to transnational organized crime. So until then, listeners, thank you to the Compliance Podcast Network and host Tom Fox, Compliance Evangelist. I'm Mikhail Ryder-Gordon. I'll see you next week. As I said in the introduction, Mikhail Ryder-Gordon and myself are going to be taking a deep dive on the Wirecard case over the next several weeks. I hope you will join us again. This special podcast series will focus on the events uh, on the ground and each week, and then we're going to take a deep dive. Some of the topics we're going to cover include Germany, Inc., the regulatory response, what this means for the overall fintech and EU regulatory world, and a variety of other interesting angles to the Wirecard case. I hope you will stick with us throughout this series. I know you will find it incredibly enjoyable as this is one of the largest frauds 
uh, since the Enron Worldcon days and the largest accounting fraud in Germany since World War II. It's going to be a ton of fun. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Please leave us a review. We would greatly appreciate that on iTunes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.